Well, it's good to see everybody this morning. I just uh, delight in, in this time of the year. I came across a story. I was reminded of this when I was looking through some information. A friend of mine talked about going to a nursing home back in 1992 and doing a service. And as he was there, it was in the month of December, and one of the ladies that was in the group from the nursing home during his ministry said, blah, 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 every year it's the same old thing, it never changes. I've heard this story ever since I was a little girl, over and over again, always the same story. Uh, Are you bored of Christmas? Maybe this is your approach. Years ago when uh, Bethany was learning how to quote scripture out loud, I wrote this down. Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only forgotten son. Is uh, is that how we're going through the Christmas season? Is, Is everything about the hustle and bustle of trying to manufacture some kind of outside ourselves, ethereal holiday spirit? We've got to go through all the traditions and try to Womp up some feel-goodism, or are, are we really enjoying the person of Jesus Christ and what He has accomplished for us? See, one of the delights that we have is to go into the Word and be reminded over and over again about what it means to know Christ personally and have an everlasting, eternal relationship with the Son of God. And I trust that we're ready to do that. Let's pray together before we go into the Word. Thank you for this day, Father. And for bringing us together, and we'll, we'll never be like this together in the same way. December 14, 2014, we have the opportunity to worship and study the scriptures so that it might impact us, prepare us for serving you the rest of this day and tomorrow. But also, Lord, how we feed our souls today on you, and how that is planted deep in our hearts will impact our relationship with you for eternity. Grow our delight in you. May it be true of us that we would not want to be in any other place right now than when with your family and around the feet of Jesus as he teaches us from the word of God. And we ask these things now in Jesus' name, amen. So much of life, uh, you can turn in your Bibles, please, to John chapter 19 while, while we get started, but so much of life seems to involve broken promises. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but so much of life seems to involve that. If you follow politics at all, you know that it seems like politics is all about saying one thing and doing another, and it doesn't matter when the election takes place, it seems to be when it happens. But life is a part of broken politics. The coach says to the player, I promise I'll get you in this game, and then he doesn't. Or he tells the recruit to college, you've got to come to Penn State, I promise you'll play. And then he ends up on being on the practice squad for all four years. Your boss tells you, I promise you're going to get Christmas Day off. I promise you're going to get that raise. Our companies are merging, yes, but your job is secure. And then the next thing you know, you're standing in unemployment. Life seems to be all about broken promises sometimes. I want you to know that Christmas is all about God keeping his promises. The Christmas story and the story of scripture is all about God doing and, and, and bringing to fulfillment 
all of the things that he has promised. And, and because of what he's done in the past, we can be certain that he's going to do the things that he says in the future as well. If you look in your Bibles at Luke chapter 1, you begin to see uh, just a selection of some of the promises that God made as we head into the Christmas season. Luke chapter 1. just notice the angel and and his statement to Mary. He says in verse 31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and we call the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he'll reign over his house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Uh, The promise was fulfilled. Mary did give birth to a son. Think about what Elizabeth says to Mary in verses 42 and 43. She cries out with a loud voice and says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? The mother of my Lord, the the mention of the Lord being the Savior. Zacharias mentions the same thing in chapter 1, verses 68 and 69 in his song of praise he says blessed be the lord god of israel for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us then he says in verses 77 through 79 to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our god with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. All of these are prophecies, or if you want uh, to call them such, they are uh, promises about Christ coming and bringing salvation. He is the salvation. He brings the salvation. It involves uh, being right with God. It involves the forgiveness of sin. Consider what the angel says to the shepherds. Chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, he says... uh, Do not be afraid. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So we see that on the day of the Lord Jesus' birth, it is the fulfillment of promises that had been made previously that had already been talked about in the six months and the nine months prior that there was a Savior who was coming who was going to bring redemption and deliverance for god's people and now the angels have this choir and they announce it the savior is here he is on the planet he's been born in the city of david the little town of bethlehem these are designed this little review is designed to just get us thinking it's designed to encourage us god's track record is one of always doing what he says he's going to do think you ought to Join me in thinking about that a little bit. God's track record is always about him doing what he says he's going to do. Now, when you're reading through these things, the question that you ask as you read through it in a normal fashion is, how does God keep this promise of salvation? Look at another prophecy, another promise that is made. This one by the man named Simeon. He's talking to Mary and Joseph And I want you to join me in Luke chapter 2, verses 29 and following. Mary and Joseph have taken Jesus to the temple. And 
in Jewish custom, according to the scriptures, on the eighth day, they would present the firstborn son to the Lord and he would be named and consecrated to the Lord. So Joseph and Mary are obeying the law of Moses. They go to the temple. They meet a man by the name of Simeon. Simeon has been promised that he would not die until he saw the hope of Israel. Now he says in verse 29, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen, what? Your salvation. Promise kept to Simeon. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. Now Simeon says one more thing. He looks at Mary in verse 34 and he says, Blessed, and he he blesses them and he says to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. Now notice verse 35. Mary, a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is a a promise and a prophecy given to Mary that something's going to come in her life later on that is going to be uh, soul-piercing. When you think about a sword piercing somebody, you think of the physical act of swinging the sword and and having it penetrate or cut a body and, and cause great physical harm and suffering. But Simeon gives a promise that deals not with physical suffering. He deals, gives a promise that deals with emotional and spiritual and mental anguish. He talks about the fact that in the future, there's going to come a time when Mary is going to experience excruciating intensity of emotional and spiritual pain. As we think about that, as we look into the scriptures in just a minute, I'm sure that uh, there's a lot of life stories in the room where different people and perhaps different moms can uh, relate in some way to Mary's anguish. It wasn't too long ago, really, a little over a month ago, that friends of ours from college, just we're not close, we don't have a lot of interaction with them, but they just happened to, to mention uh, in social media that their son, their 21-year-old son, had been in a vehicle accident, and he was a passenger in a, an accident where the truck was just totally demolished and their son was in critical care with severe head trauma. And there was some question as to what was going to happen and how badly was he going to be hurt and how much consequence and uh, how much suffering was going to be the result of this accident, what were going to be the side effects and and just the anguish that came out in the page and, and how... Uh, they struggled to even communicate what they were feeling as they kept a bedside vigil for that first week and began to wait and see what would happen with their son, Doug. It ended well for them. But some of our parents have had anguish that maybe has not ended well, whether it has involved the loss of a baby prematurely or a tragedy before the holidays. Some of you have been in situations where you've, you've been in hospitals and, and been in uh, struggles of, of waiting to see what was going to happen with a child. Uh, maybe you, you struggle through life with a child that's got learning disabilities or has been bullied 
they injure themselves, they have a vehicle accident. Maybe your anguish today is because of children or a child that has decided to not follow closely after God and is destroying themselves. We come to this passage and this promise that God gives through Simeon to Mary says that for the benefit of the world, I'm going to do something, but in doing it, it's going to bring you an intensity of pain that you could have never imagined. Sometimes we think about God's promises, we tend to think about heaven, and we think about deliverance, and we think about salvation, and and we love to go to Revelation 21 where there's no more tears and no more pain and no more suffering. Isn't that right? Amen? Love that passage. But you know, oftentimes uh, before there is the, the arrival at no more tears and no more suffering, there are events in life that we go through like what Mary's going to go through. Mary, you are going to have a soul-wrenching experience as a mom and as a woman and as an individual because I need to do something that's going to involve your son that's going to bring delight and joy and hope to the entire planet. That's what we're studying right now. That's what we're looking at right now in the Gospel of John. That's the setting where we find ourselves in John chapter 19 this morning where we read the fulfillment of Simeon's words to Mary. This is the day where Mary will feel the sword plunge into her soul. We watch as people respond to Jesus in different ways. And uh, this is the day of her greatest pain. But I want you to understand something. As we look at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and see how it relates to the Christmas story and the prophecy that was given to Mary, I want you to understand something about Mary as you study her this morning. The day of her greatest pain will also be the day that purchases her eternal salvation. Have you ever thought of that? The day of her greatest pain is also the day that purchases her eternal salvation because the man that she gave birth to is going to pay the price for her sins. Mary, a sword is going to pierce your soul so that I can bring hope and peace and love to the entire planet. I want you to look at the paragraph with me this morning. We're going to look at three movements. The crucifixion of Jesus. We're going to see the compassion of Jesus. And finally, we're going to see the completeness of his cross work. And as we go through that, Uh, One of the underlying foundational principles of the paragraph is that God keeps His promises. And in the midst of keeping His promises, He brings hope uh, to people who have to go through great pain. So I want you to journey with me this morning. First, we're going to look at the crucifixion. The entire paragraph of chapter 19, verses 17 to 37, is written in such a way that it emphasizes a number of prophecies or promises that are made by God that he keeps. We're just going to start reading them and and we're going to go through them rather quickly and I want you to see what God does and how he does it. So begin with me. We're going to follow along. You can follow while I read looking at verse 17 of John chapter 19. 
says they took Jesus therefore and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. This is what we call uh, Calvary. The place of the skull is called Calvary. And here we read about the fact uh, that Jesus is led to this place where he is going to be executed. He's going to be executed by crucifixion. It's an ancient hideous method of putting people to death. It still is in existence today. You'll often find Islamic terrorist groups are crucifying Christians that will not recant their faith. It's still in practice today. Uh, It could have been the ancient Carthaginians that started it. It could have been the ancient Phoenicians. But the ones who get credit for customizing it and perfecting it as a mode of execution were the Romans. They used they used it exclusively for the most hideous of criminals, of those who were not Roman citizens. It was uh, supposedly against Roman law for a Roman citizen to be crucified. But they are the ones that did it. And a person could hang on that tree for days and days and suffer uh, before they died. But I want you to understand that even as we read John chapter 19, verse 17... There are a number of scriptures that are starting to be fulfilled. Now, if you don't have a study Bible and you're not opposed to writing in the margin of your Bible to help you in Bible study, let me give you some verses this morning because right next to John 19, 17, you could write this reference. It would be Deuteronomy 21, 23 because in that it refers to cursed is every man who hangs upon a tree. And then you could put Galatians 3, 13, because Galatians quotes that Deuteronomy passage. And Paul applies it to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, by being crucified on the cross, became a curse for us. He took our punishment on himself. So when John writes matter-of-factly that Jesus was crucified, he's also writing in such a way that reminds us that God has kept a promise. He has fulfilled a prophecy. It also Uh, tells us that Isaiah chapter 53 verses 4 to 7 is fulfilled. Uh, Particularly verse 7 where it talks about Jesus being led like a lamb to the slaughter. In other words, Jesus did not fight going to his execution. He did not try to run away. He was compliant and submissive. Easily led to that place because his will was to do the will of the Father. The will of the Father was that the Lamb of God would die to take away the sin of the world. And so he is like, led like a lamb to the slaughter. He is the scapegoat who will bear the sins outside the camp. He is the goat uh, of atonement who will atone for sin once and for all. Finally, John nineteen seventeen reminds us of, of John three fourteen, The night that Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he said, Nicodemus, even as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up. Then in verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So when you read John 19, 17, I'm telling you, it can remind you of other scriptures where God has promised that this was going to happen exactly the way he said it would, all the way back in Deuteronomy. The crucifixion story has begun. This is the event that Simeon talked about. And the question is, how, how is God going to accomplish salvation? What I want you to remember is this. Jesus Christ was born so that he could die. He came to this earth, uh, 
Philippians chapter 2 says that he humbled himself, took on the form of a man, and became obedient to do the will of the Father, an obedience that led even to death on the cross. Why? He died as our substitute. He died as our sin bearer, the one who took our place. He took our sin, our shame, and our guilt. He bore it on his body, and he died as the cursed sacrifice on the cross. And he absorbed the full wrath of the Father. He took our eternal punishment upon himself so that we might be brought to God. He died so that he could save us from our sins. He died because we could not save ourselves. Understand, try to, I pray the Lord will give understanding this morning. It is an absolutely ridiculous story to think that Jesus would leave heaven just to come to this earth and live in this sinful muck and mire just to be a good example for us. He didn't need to leave heaven to do that. He needed to come from heaven to save people from hell because they couldn't save themselves. Listen, in your workforce and in your school, in your classes, in your neighborhood are people who don't know Jesus Christ and they cannot save themselves. Just like a leopard, Isaiah says, can't change his spots. He can't can't unzip the fur and put on the fur of a lion. A leper can't do that. A leopard is a leopard. So too, we are sinners and we can't change who we are. There's nothing that we could do to have rescued ourselves or helped ourselves. It required divine intervention. Jesus came to save and rescue people from their sin. Verse 18, it says that Jesus is crucified between two thieves. One on either side of him. In the margin of your Bible, you could write down Isaiah 53, verse 12, where it says he would be numbered with the transgressors. He was crucified between thieves. How accurate and how precise is God's word? Verse 20, or verse 19, excuse me. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put on the cross. It was written, Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews, and therefore many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Look at verse 19 with me and I want you to understand uh, that Jesus' death is in fulfillment of Daniel 9, 26 and 27. You can write that in the margin of your Bible. Daniel 9, 26 and 27 talks about Uh, a group of people coming on the scene and they were going to kill the Messiah. The Messiah would be cut off. So as we read the story, we realize that Pilate, as the governor, the Roman governor, representative of the Roman Empire, is the one who is guilty of executing Israel's king, the Messiah. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that Daniel was very precise, precise to the exact year when Jesus Christ would be crucified. I don't know if you've ever thought about that or not. But if you go back to the the time when Artaxerxes declares that Jerusalem should be rebuilt, and you, you count the number of years that Daniel prophesied, it arrives exactly at the date when Jesus Christ was crucified. The Bible in the Old Testament, Israel's scripture, told them exactly when they should be looking for the Messiah to be born. I want you to know, too, 
Pilate puts a placard above the head of Jesus and it reads, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. I think it's interesting to find out that as you consider the fact that that placard was written in three languages, why is that so significant? Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Because those are the three major languages that are in that time period uh, in terms of doing business. There's the Hebrew, which is local. There's Greek, which is empire. But Latin is also a, a legal language and an official language of the empire. And what we see here is that Jesus' death is a cosmopolitan death that is to say that jesus death is for the people of the whole world the placard is god's way of announcing that jesus christ died for peoples of the whole planet he didn't just die for jews he didn't just die for romans he died for what we call today native americans and he died for eskimos and he died for the people of asia and he died for the people of south america and africa and all of the continents jesus death is in fulfillment of john three sixteen. god so loved the world see as you begin to work through these verses you realize that either by direct quotation or by inference john's entire argument is all about the fact that we have a god who keeps his promises over and over and over. And just like the scriptures predict, the chief priests oppose him to the very end. That's why they say in verse 21 to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews. Write, he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, in verse 23, took his outer garments and made four parts apart to every soldier and also the tunic the tunic was seamless and woven in one piece and they said to one another let us not tear it but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be now notice john's point this was to fulfill the scripture this was to fulfill the scripture this is psalm 22 verse 18 they divided my outer garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots, and therefore the soldiers did these things. Now, these men are ignorant. They don't understand Scripture. They're just going about their daily horrible duty. They are totally oblivious to their role in the eternal story. And yet John is careful to mention at this point in the story that this is happening in order to fulfill what was prophesied in the Old Testament. Everything that's taking place up to this point is, is very precise, it's very direct, it's very organized. It reminds us that uh, when we come to the Scriptures, we can always be encouraged about the accuracy of the Scriptures and the authority of the Scriptures and, and their sufficiency. But I want you to notice something else now as you think about Jesus Christ. Notice the people that Jesus is dying for. Jesus dies for the wicked criminals, the, the criminals on his right and his left. Jesus is dying for the compromising politicians. We don't know any of those, thankfully, but Pilate, Pilate didn't know which way to go at all, right? Jesus dies for the compromising politician. Jesus dies for the people of the world, and Jesus dies for his enemies. We'll find in Acts chapter 6 that many of the priests 
come to the faith in Jesus Christ. But on this day, they are not believing in Jesus. They are executing him. Jesus dies for his enemies and Jesus dies for those who are ignorant in their unbelief. That's the soldiers. That's the the soldiers represent peoples of the world who don't know any better, who are just trapped in their culture, trapped in where they live, trapped in their upbringing, trapped and they've never heard any different. They've never heard the message of the good news. Jesus died for people in their ignorance and in their unbelief. What I want you to think about this morning is how vast and how great, how marvelous is the love of our God who has seen to it that he has been so precise and so so specific in keeping all of his promises. The likelihood that this story could be made up has been illustrated this way. Let me share a story with you. Somebody did some some math work, and I wasn't really good in math. I didn't particularly enjoy it either. Probability and statistics. How many of you liked that class? Let me ask, how many of you took it? Okay. Yeah, Mike. Okay. Enough said about that. All right. All right. Uh, Should I ask you if you liked it too? Okay. Probability and statistics. What is the likelihood that if this story was not divine, that a bunch of human writers could have gotten together and organized all of this information so that it all comes true at one point in time in history through the person of Jesus Christ. Well, how many of you know what a silver dollar is? How many of you just have only ever seen a paper $1 bill? Yeah, a silver dollar, it's made of silver, okay? And it's bigger than a 50-cent piece, all right? Now, if you had one of those and you started laying them side by side on the ground and you began to cover the entire state of Texas, you get one layer of silver dollars all over the entire state of Texas and then you did it again and you did it again and you did it again until those layers were two feet deep. In all of those layers of silver dollars, one of them was marked. Then you would take a man and blindfold him and turn him loose throughout the state of Texas and he had one chance to pick the marked silver dollar. That is the probability of someone or anyone coming together and trying to fabricate all of these stories and having them fit together without any contradiction and without any error. It is impossible. There's no way that the message that we're going over this morning and the accuracy of all of God's promises and the accuracy of all of these fulfillments could have ever been man-made. What I want you to understand is there is a precision that leads to a confidence. And we see it through the outworking of the birth and the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. The whole story is one of complete accuracy. John sums it up. These things are written to fulfill the scriptures. The second part of the story Even as Jesus is hanging on the cross, not only do we have a a confidence as we study the crucifixion, uh, but we have a confidence because of the compassion of Jesus. Again, I want you to remember the day of Mary's greatest suffering is also the day of her eternal salvation. 
Sometimes we go through some things that we can't always understand at the moment why we're going through them. And God is the one who makes sense of the mess. He is the one who can help to sort through the intensity of pain so that we can see how he's working and develop an eternal perspective. So we notice in verse 25, the compassion of Jesus, that on the day of Mary's, his mother's greatest mental and emotional anguish, we see Jesus caring for his mother. Verse 25 says, by, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Now what we have here is we have the compassion of Jesus as he's taking care of his mother as he's dying. I don't know why. Uh, People could ask why. Jesus had other brothers and sisters. Why does he choose to entrust the care and the oversight of Mary to John? I don't know, but he does. He trusts John. He loves John. But what I want you to see is in the midst of his suffering, as he's coming to the end of his cross work to make atonement for sin, he looks at his mom and he doesn't call her mom. He doesn't call her mother. He calls her woman. That's not a a word of disrespect. That's not, he's not dissing her. He's not putting her down, but there's a, a change of relationship. There's been a change in their relationship. He's been living as the, the son of God. He's been working as the son of God. And, and now what we see is in death that Jesus even fulfills scripture because the scriptures tell us to honor our father and our mother. I just want to speak to our high schoolers and, and to our college age students concept of honoring your parents does not stop when you're 18. Just because our government says that all of a sudden you're old enough to to legally vote and you can register for the draft does not mean that you have permission to go out, live like a wild hooligan and break all the laws and commit all kinds of sins and bring disrepute and dishonor to your parents. In fact, it intensifies your obligation that now as you become an adult, you begin to look at your parents with an appreciation and a gratitude for what's been invested in you and you prepare yourself for how you're going to be involved in their life when you get to the end with them. And and now it'll be your turn to take care of them just like they took care of you at the beginning. This whole honoring your mother and father thing is loaded with societal responsibility. Jesus is on the cross and he's dying, but he does not fail to keep the law. And so it was one of the last things that he can do in terms of human relationships. He looks at his mom and he provides for her well-being, her emotional well-being, her physical well-being, her financial well-being. And he says, from this point on, see John as your oldest son. See John as the one who is going to be the most responsible for you. Do you know why I think it's true? I think it's because all of his brothers and other siblings have not yet come to faith in who he is. John understands because John is a believer. John has the heart of God and John will bring a compassion toward this woman even though she's not his biological mother. There's already friendships established between these women. It's going to be almost seamless. But what I want you to understand here 
is that even in death, he fulfills the scripture in honoring his mom. And one of the things that this teaches us about Jesus and his compassion and meets us right where we are today is this. There is no human experience that we can go through where Jesus cannot be our comforter, our caregiver, and our sustainer. The example of Jesus on the cross in his capacity to minister to the one human being that loves him the most. He is able to speak truth into her life. He is able to minister mercy into her life. Is to us an example that we can trust Jesus and Jesus will meet us at our point of need when we go through some of life's greatest and most intense times of agony as well. How he cares for his mother is a picture to us and it's a reminder that he is not someone who cannot be touched with our infirmities, Hebrews says. But he sympathizes with us because he is in all points tempted like we are. He has experienced the pressures and, the, and all of, of what life can throw at us on this planet. And as our great and merciful high priest stands ready to bring grace and mercy to help in our time of need. Some of you need some massive doses of divine mercy today. Please don't make the mistake of running away from Jesus. Please don't make the mistake of thinking that the heartaches and the intensity of the pain that is in your heart can somehow be modified or nullified by going to a bottle of pills or a bottle of Jack Daniels. Please don't think that if you just go out and spend more on your Christmas cards and buy more Christmas gifts, that somehow that's going to create an artificial happiness that will diminish the pain that you're feeling right now. Please don't do that. That will not, that will not meet the need. The example of Jesus on the, on the cross as he cares for his mother speaks to the fact that he is able always and at any moment to bring grace and mercy to help in our time of need. As he cares for his mom, we can look at scripture and we can see how he cared for Stephen even in the moment of death. We can look and see how he cared for Joseph in prison. We can look and see how he cared for Naomi and took her through that experience where she went through times of great pain and she said, don't call me Naomi, call me bitter. I'm an angry, bitter woman. And at the end of the story, she was able to see God's hand and she was going by her right name again and praising God because God had worked things out. Listen, the scripture is full of examples where Jesus comes into people's lives and helps them go through some of the most desperate and dark times of their life. And everybody in this room doesn't know everybody else's story. I don't know everybody else's story, but I know this. I've got a good God and I've got a good Savior. And if he can die on the cross in front of his very own mother and bring grace and mercy into her life at that moment, the very day that she is emotionally being torn apart and he says, I love you and I care for you and you've got to trust me, then I can tell you, you can trust Jesus. If he can care for his mom on the day that he is saving his mom, even though it's ripping her heart out, you can trust him. You can trust him. You can trust him. Do you understand? Do you understand the Christmas story? What a great Savior to think that the Son of God left heaven and can bring that amount of compassion and that amount 
of grace and that amount of mercy to bear that even as he is purchasing the salvation of Mary and Mary Magdalene and Mary the wife of Clopas and John and he is purchasing the the salvation for Jeff, that he can walk her through that and say, you trust me and it's going to be okay. What is it that you're carrying today? I want you to know that I, I believe that you should go away thrilled today because you have a God who keeps his promises. And just should rock your world. <laughs> Mary's pain did not go away immediately. And probably yours won't either. But what we do find is that because of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, she was able to go on and and function and live, and she made vital contributions to the church of Jesus Christ. When you read in Acts chapter 1, she is in the upper room with the 120, and they are praying together for the replacement of Judas, and she's, she's there. She's there when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. She's a major contributor to the birth of the church. God doesn't have to take away the source of pain God doesn't have to prevent the experience of pain in order to have a vital Christian experience. What I'm telling you is that God is able to provide the grace and mercy to us to help us to thrive through the pain and live for His honor and glory because He's a great and a compassionate Savior. I want to tell you where that starts. That starts at the cross. It starts at the cross where you are invited to come to the cross and see Jesus as your substitute who died in your place and paid the price for your sin and was buried and rose again. And it starts when you would admit your sinfulness and believe on Jesus Christ once and for all and only as your Savior. And you would call unto Him and say, Lord, come into my life and be my Savior today. That is where mercy and hope and the grace of the Christmas story begins for you. If you've never trusted on Jesus Christ as your Savior, then today is the day you ought to do that. Today is the day you ought to ask Jesus to come into your life, not because He's going to take away all your pain and not because He's going to remove all your problems, but because He is a compassionate Savior. And I want you to understand this morning that your biggest need is not to have a happy life. Your biggest need is to be rescued from hell and to know that you're going to heaven and being with this great Savior forever. That is your biggest need. Brothers and sisters, if you already know Jesus as your Savior, then there's two things that ought to impact you. Number one, what ought to grab you and the way you study and the way you read Scripture over and over again is how, how good God is in keeping His Word and keeping His promises. And the track record of the past allows us to look at the future with great expectation. Like when He says, I will build my church. What's He going to continue to do? He's going to continue to what? build his church when he says i will come again and receive you unto myself what's he going to do he's going to come again and receive you he says i will never leave you and forsake you what's he going to do he's never going to leave you and never forsake you the promises ought to thrill you secondly i would pray that our decisions this morning will be that no matter the pain 
from other circumstances or memories that are a part of my life this morning, my prayer is that you will choose to worship and rejoice because of the eternal salvation that was purchased for you by Christ. And that God will help you to thrive, not because of the removal of pain, but because he gives you grace and mercy to go through it like he did his very own mom. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you for your love and your grace that we can be reminded of at this Christmas season. And we come to you now as people. You know this. We're needy. You know how we're made. You know what the fight is for us. Over and over, you invite us to come into your presence in prayer, to come with boldness and to ask for help. So Lord, I pray for help. I pray that you'll grow our confidence in your word and in you. pray that you'll grow our boldness in telling other people about the great Jesus that we love and we serve. And I pray that you'll grow our confidence in being able to hold on to your hand and walk through life knowing that you will supply the grace and the mercy necessary to endure it. We thank you, Lord, for being a wonderful Savior. Maybe there's somebody here today that does not know Jesus Christ as Savior. They've been trusting in all the wrong things. My prayer would be that even now in the quietness of their heart, they might admit to you and agree with you their own sinfulness. And they would believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for them, was buried and rose again. And they would call on him in their own hearts, Lord, come into my life and save me and give me the forgiveness of sins. Lord, I pray that not only would they be saved, but they would immediately tell somebody else about the good news of Jesus Christ and let other people know so that they would be able to rejoice with them. We love you and pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.